Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. We're back in Motorsport HQ after some away days at the Royal Automobile Club down on Pall Mall and also in Woodcote Park. Um, I'm Ed Foster, and I'm the online editor of Motorsport Magazine, and I'm joined by Simon Aaron, Damien Smith, and Nigel Roebuck. A very warm welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, now, our guest today, which I'm sure you will all know because it will be in the title of the podcast, is Frank Durney, um, who came to the Motorsport offices today in the same way that you travelled to Imperial College Wind Tunnel 37 years ago? That's correct, yep. Every wind tunnel test was train, check data, train, <laughs> check data, train, <laughs> check data for a week. Yeah. Well, I can't promise you there'll be a lot of checking data today, but uh, just for everyone who d doesn't know about Frank's amazing uh, history in Formula One, um, after Imperial College, you joined Hesketh um, at the end of 76, and then went on to Williams for a long stint there with a lot of success, and then went to Lotus, Benetton, Ligier, Arrows, Lola, Williams again, and then to Toyota Motorsport in 2007 as a consultant for two years. It's quite a CV there. Yeah, it's... Um it, yes, it's quite long, isn't it? I think 35 <laughs> years in motorsport, that's a lot of aeroplanes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to actually start on something that's not motorsport, um, obviously. Uh, and uh, I, saw, I found online that you actually started off designing record players. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. I, I, I wrote a computer program. What got my foot in the door is I wrote a computer program to optimise suspension geometry in 1971 when I was a student. And I had an external supervisor called Harvey Postlethwaite. And I did part-time work for Harvey all the time until I got a full-time job. But basically, in the meantime, I did noise and vibration research, including designing record players. Um, how did you end up at Hesketh's store in 76? Well, well, what happened was um, Harvey had gone off to do the wolf thing. with, And, uh, well, he joined Frank, basically, because Hesketh had stopped. Hesketh found the money to continue. They knew I'd been doing a lot of the anal analysis of wind tunnel results and stuff for Harvey. So they actually rang me up and asked me if I'd like a proper job. And Nigel Stroud, who'd been doing the mods on the car and who's a brilliant guy, he had said, look, I need someone who can do the sums. So Nigel and I, between us, started designing the car. So it was because of the work I'd done for Harvey. Funnily enough, in the early days of working for Harvey. It turned out he was paying me out of his own pocket so his employer didn't find out where the infam who was doing the work. <laughs> had had uh, motor racing always been the, uh, the, the target? Or oh yes. Yeah. It's the only, the only reason I did mechanical engineering at Imperial College because that's where Keith Duckworth went. How, how, did, how did the bug first bite with motor racing? Well my dad was keen. He was actually a motorsport reader and um, <laughs> I remember... Sounds like a great guy. Yeah. <laughs> And he, he um, I went to a race at Silverstone, I think in 1956 was the first race. I think it was probably a tourist trophy or something. Archie Scott Brown was my hero as a small boy. And um, the bug hit, but I was always more interested by the technical side. I was always been interested in how things work. Always took things to bits, always tried to do that. And I knew that I wasn't brave enough to be a driver. And I'd observed, and maybe this is an arrogant statement, that in actual fact, the world champion is usually the better of the two drivers in the best car. Pretty well always. And I, therefore, wanted to try and make the best car. <laughs> Nigel, when was your, uh, your first motor race? First motor race I can remember. Um, 
was the British Empire Trophy at Oldham Park in, uh, in 1954. Yeah. Well, that's good to remember. And the that. first Formula One race I went to was, the, was later in the year, uh, was the gold, the gold Cup at Oldham Park, which is where my obsession with Jean Barra started. So it goes back all that time. And I had been to races before, but I had no memory of them. My parents loved it. Um, and they always went to the Grand Prix and so on. So I had been with them, but you know, when you're four or five, you don't really remember. So I mean, basically, you two are exactly the same era, aren't you? Really? And yeah, yeah. The the first race I ever covered uh, of any kind, which was the Spanish Grand Prix in '71, um, and I I think I'm sure I've told this story before, but I I briefly got to know Rob Walker, and on my first morning at Barcelona, my first race, knew knew nobody, and Rob just said, well, if you're going to be part of this, you'd better get to know everybody. And he spent a morning literally taking me around the paddock and introducing me to anyone. Can you imagine that? That's just it's how it works now, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, my first It's utterly inconceivable yeah. now, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the things, things are just were so different then. There are probably everybody working in Formula One now would probably be fewer than Ferrari travel with. Oh, that's probably right, yeah. Mm. Actually, it comes back to me. When we got to um, to Lotus, um, Chapman was there, and he was talking to Emerson. Um, and I cl clearly remember Rob saying, oh, Colin, could you just stop that for a minute and come meet somebody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good, good imitation. But uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> the thing is, there was no motorhome. No, no, they couldn't. There's nowhere to hide. No, no, absolutely. I was, I was going to ask. You know, you'd when you joined Hesketh. It's, I mean, at the time, obviously, it was Formula One, and that's sort of where it was at that time. But you know, having worked for the likes of Toyota and Formula One, you obviously had a huge team. Williams over your time there certainly grew exponentially. What's what was it like thinking back now? To working for Hesketh because there was not that many people in the team, and no, we they were weren't there waiting. The total years, company was 18 people, and the race team went to the airport in two cars. All of us. Amazing, um, to be honest, I was a young guy, 26 when I started designing the car. I was, frankly, I was scared stiff because, you know, you're doing all the calculations. There was only one person doing the calculations. And the thing that was always in the back of my mind was, am I going to kill somebody? You know, is this rollover hoop going to be strong enough? And all that sort of stuff. I, that scared me far more than is the car going to be quick enough, to be honest, with the tiny resource we had. Do you, do you think even with all the data they have nowadays, you learnt quicker in such a small team because you had, so, as you were saying then, so much responsibility from... Probably, and there was a lot more to learn, of course, because so little was known. There's a lot more known now. Um, and I do think, in many ways, you, were, you did everything. You know, you went to the wind tunnel, had a bit of a think about the results, changed the concept, then you went back to the factory and you drew some structure, and then you were testing and you were listening to the driver saying it understeers too much or whatever, and you were going back thinking, I wonder why that is. So the loop was closed within one mind. Now you have race engineers who wouldn't have the foggiest idea how to run a wind tunnel program or design an upright or sort out a gearbox issue. Not a chance in the world of doing that. And so closing the loop requires huge amounts of paperwork and huge amounts, frankly, of interpretation saying, oh, well, so-and-so said that, what he really means must be this, and therefore I'm going to ask the aero guys to look into that, because the loop isn't closed in one person, and it hasn't been for quite a long time. I guess 
it, I was the person at Williams who did the concept side and the testing. I didn't get much involved in the detailed design. That was definitely Patrick's domain. But when we were testing, if the driver said something that sort of linked to something I'd been worried about, about a characteristic of a wing being close to stall or something like that, I could make the link and say, oh, well, we better run, let's run one whole less wing here then until, you know, I have a check. Whereas that, that loop would be impossible today. Would you say then that generally engineers who grew up in your generation tend to be much more rounded than the, the mo modern <coughs> counterparts? I mean, you've got loads of people now who might be damper specialists and know every single microscopic thing there is to know about a damper. But as you said before, the, you know, the, the global vision is not quite the same. Yeah, that's very much the case. In individually, I mean, I did the first carbon fibre stuff at Williams because it came under R&D and we didn't have any carbon fibre people. So, in fact, uh, Ross Braun and myself, I, did, I selected all the resins and all the rest of the stuff. Ross looked into how we were going to make a mould. And between the two of us, we laid up and made the first carbon fibre parts at Williams because it was an R&D project. So... I don't know nothing about carbon fibre, but on the other hand, when you look at the sort of expertise there is today and the computer modelling and these phenomenal crash structures that people have come up with, I'm nowhere near even knowing how to start with that, apart from, let's hire him. <laughs> 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 he seems like a good guy. Um, we've been talking about Williams. Um, you arrived there sort of quite early in the team's history, certainly looking back now, um, what's, what were the kind of changes that happened over the, you know, what after you arrived to take the team from, you know, I think they got a second place in 78 USGP, but you suddenly, there was a lot more success after your arrival. What was it, because I think obviously there was the wind tunnel, um, but with lots of other changes? Well, I, don't, I, I mean, I can't really say what it was like beforehand, but I, I picked up doing all the aero, um, which I don't think Patrick liked very much. Um, and so I think it, it was probably the fact that we could do more. Before I arrived, there was just Patrick. And Neil, who'd come straight out of college, and so was still learning. And there's only so much one guy can do. So me arriving effectively doubled the engineering knowledge and cap capacity of the team. So we could go off, and Patrick didn't have to go to every test anymore. Um, so he could concentrate far more. And... Uh, with all due respect to Frank, Patrick Ram Williams, you know, he was the guy who made sure the factory worked. He was the guy that everyone was terrified of, so that if he said that front will be ready on Friday, <laughs> it was ready on Friday. <laughs> you know, um, Patrick <coughs> was the driving force at Williams, and him being able to be there and concentrate on those things made a big improvement, I think. And I could sort of wander off to Imperial College and do a bit of a wind tunnel test or go off to Brands Hatch testing the car and it didn't impinge on his focus at all. Yeah. What, what was Patrick like to work with? You obviously said Brilliant. that. Brilliant. I mean, we're mates. We, I met, uh, when I first met Patrick, I was still doing work for Harvey. Harvey had invited me to go to Bennett Road, which is where Frank Williams Racing Cars was and where Wolf became. And um, there was a porter cabin in the car park and I went into the porter cabin, and Patrick Head was at one drawing board, and a guy called Gary Thomas was at the other, and that was the engineering office. And I met Patrick on that day. And for various reasons, we sort of hit it off. In many ways, you know, we, we had, we were friends outside racing. And I 100% trusted him, and I guess he 100% trusted me. He never really bothered. There were a couple of times where he, he was convinced that somebody was doing something better than us. 
in the aero side or something. It might give me a bit of a hassle, but that was in 10 years. And um, other than that, we just got on with doing our things. And it was brilliant, to be honest. I could finish his sentences. When I, was, when I first got CAD, the surfacing a bit used to take 20 minutes or so. So I'd set it off. Uh, no, I'd do a backup. Those of you who know computers in the old days, I'd back up what I got, then I'd set it off. And then I go down and make us both a cup of tea and go up to Patrick's office for a chat about what we were going to do next while the computer finished. And, you know, you don't get anything like that now. There were no formal meetings at all. None. Lovely time. Now, now, do you remember um, Williams in those days and kind of what, how they were received in the paddock? Because obviously, you know, oh. it was a very struggling team to start a with. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was saying to Frank earlier on, you know, I've got, I found some photographs not long ago of... Um, going to Williams for the for the launch of FW06, which really was the beginning of Williams Grand Prix engineering, yes. wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, and we were just talking about, you know, how it was, I mean, how few people there were there. I mean, there, I think Patrick said it was sort of around 20, something like that. Inclu I'd be surprised if it was that many. Including the receptionist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we had, when I joined, we had one lady who answered the phone and was everybody's secretary, including Frank's. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was not very big. I mean, of course... Frank was also very good at focusing on what was important, or with Patrick's guidance, <laughs> perhaps, in as much as we... If I needed another week in the wind tunnel, the money was found. If somebody wanted to re... Well, we didn't have a motorhome, but if somebody wanted to do something that was purely cosmetic... Sorry, we haven't got the money at the moment. And I remember so very well, in 1979, we didn't have a motorhome at all. We ate from the kiosks and we didn't have a truck either for the European races we had to have all the flyaway containers to go to the flyaway races and we just used them all year and Biggles who became our truckie the following year who was still in the RAF was doing in-service training at the RAF's expense <laughs> came to work for Williams he went and got a, a rental flatbed truck drove it to Station Road Everybody in the factory used to hump the cars and all these Ragcon travel containers onto the back of this truck, stick a tarpaulin over it. Biggles used to drive to the Grand Prix. Roy from McLaren used to use their tail lift to get the cars off. You know, those were the days. And um, by the end of the season, we were winning races. Wolf had got the fanciest motorhome in the paddock. They got parquet flooring in their truck and they were DNQing. So I learned quite a lot that year. Sort of BAR <coughs> saga, isn't it? <laughs> Very much, yeah. And f there's a sto funny story about Biggles, talking about the old days. We did a... Um, emptied the truck to go through the spares and make sure everything was in good nick and all this, that and the other. Uh, this was a Patrick. Got to make sure everything's perfect. And going through the bits, there were some Dash 12 oil coolers and hose and fittings and everything. And Patrick said, we haven't used that for years. And Beagle said, yeah, but, but Brabham do. <laughs> 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 uh, so he kept it in stock just in case they needed to borrow some. Um, in fact, sorry, just one thing that strikes me. Before, I mean, talking about the launch of FW06, but before that, my first few years in it, I mean, Frank, that was when he really was hand-to-mouth, you know. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. And, well, even in my first year, you checked yeah. your air ticket to make sure it had a return tab. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, Frank. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember, um, uh, I mean, occasionally, you know, Bernie used to help him out. And, um, and for instance, you know, would, would sort of lend him a DFV. Mm. Um, but I remember being 
talking to Frank one day, and I, I got there around lunchtime. That very morning, he said he'd had a, uh, a, a reminder from Bernie that he owed him money. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, what, what, what form did the reminder take? And he just said, well, this morning, about mid-morning, two chaps arrived in a transit, uh, and they came into the factory, and they picked up a DFV and they took it out and they put it in their van and they drove away. Not, and not a word was said, but I got the message. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to dive into the reader's questions. There's one from Chris Boardman here. Um, and he's asking, what were the main differences between working with Williams and Toyota? And is Williams more nimble and, and efficient at developing their car, or w were they? I mean, obviously, you're very different eras, but... Well, it depends remember. on whether you're talking... Because I was at Williams just before going to Toyota as well. So. Um, yes, they were more nimble. Um, much more experience is the, is the thing. Uh, Toyota, I really do think Toyota were making it. And it was a shame they pulled out. And I'm going to be a bit unkind to Yano here. I think the, car, the 2009 car was pretty good. But you had a guy who was brilliant at qualifying but went to sleep for at least 30 laps every race. And another guy who used to lose his cool during qualifying as a result of which he didn't do himself justice. And whilst he used to race well, you can't overtake. And I think if you'd have got someone like Alonso in it and they hadn't gone down a wrong route on the aero, they would have, you know, they would have eventually made it. It just took them a very long time and they stopped just as they were on the cusp, in my view. But, you know, at Williams, you got you wanted to know something about dampers. There was a guy who'd been there for 30 years who you knew since he was a lad who, oh, well, well I remember, yeah, 20, we did try one of those valves 20 years ago and it really, I'm not sure, I might have still got it, you know, and that sort of thing. There was nothing like that at Toyota, obviously. It was a, no. So that, the sort of racing DNA wasn't there as a result of which everything, a, the information wasn't in the back of people's minds. It had to be looked for. And the, the pace just, of development wasn't there. Yeah, having said that, I mean, at the start of 2005, I mean, they'd, they'd been getting podiums and qualifying right at the front, Toyota had, on a fairly regular basis initially. And it just, there was a massive peak there. And it looked at that stage that it was going to be quite good, but. Um, it didn't get that way, no. no. Well, I just. You've got, the problem is, you have got people who are not necessarily racers, and they'll get a massively big idea about, oh, we must do this. And if it doesn't work, it's probably six months gone and you're at the back of the grid before anyone's expecting that it hasn't worked. It's funny, just uh, what you're just saying there about Yano. I mean, I, I, I always thought Yano was as good over one lap as anybody probably I've ever seen. I quite agree. Um, and I remember his poll at Monaco, for instance. It was, it was, you know, out of this world. But then he went to sleep and, 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 and actually in that way he was very similar to Fisichella. Um, and uh, one year at, at Monza, I was I was uh, invited by Renault to be hooked up to the um, phones and all the rest of it all through the race, and I could hear the conversations between the drivers and the engineers. And it was fascinating the difference because there was hardly a word said between Rod Nelson and, and Fernando. Just Fernando came on just once in a while. All he wanted to know was where's Ki where's uh, where's Kimi because it was thinking about the championship. Other than that, he, uh, and uh, I mean, he would also. I remember at one point somebody ran us saying, "God, you know, he was in the middle of Curva Grandi when he said that." <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but but the fact <coughs> the fact is, I mean, there was this old thing about Alonso is on it every single lap he's in the car, he's just on it. And I think it was Alan Permain actually, who was um, Fisichella's race engineer, and all the way through the race he was having to chivy him. We need a quick lap, you mm. know, because Kimi was had, had a problem and he was mm. coming through with it. We, 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 you know, you need to get on with. And the thing about it was, Fisichella would always respond. So you thought, well, what the hell have you been doing there? Yeah, why were you doing that? Exactly, every lap. you yeah. can do that. But yeah. wh why were they going to sleep? Why did Yano go really to sleep? I really don't know. I really don't know. I mean, there would be, it, it, particularly if it rained, he would do a lap that was like eight seconds off the pace, which meant that, you know, somebody could gain a pit stop on him or something. And, and he never really, oh, the, 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 the tyre temperature, couldn't get the temperature or something. I mean... I don't know. I mean, if 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 we knew why, we would probably have fixed it fairly quickly because he's a fa he's a smart guy. I mean, he's uh, and I like him a lot. It's just that as a, uh, it's like that's why I'm a big Alonso fan, mind you, because up to Alonso joining, Fisichella was on a one lap faster than everybody that he's he'd had as a teammate. And when Alonso arrived, you had to look down the sheet before you came to Fisichella. He was way quicker, whereas Kimi who everyone rated higher, I thought, um, was really about the same as Juan Pablo. He was a bit quicker some places, a bit slower others. But for me, right from them being young drivers, I always rated Alonso very much higher than Raikkonen. If I could just go back to the subject of Mr. Trulitz, it's interesting that I mean, the reputation he has, which is well known in Formula 1 for the, the kind of slightly dozy approach at certain stages of the race, I saw him in a German F3 race in 1996 at the Nürburgring when he got uh, someone biffed his front wing quite early on. And his racecraft that day, he, he no longer had a quick car or quick enough. Um, but this queue of cars built up behind him and he kept putting his car in the correct place all the time. The trolley train. Yeah. Well, it was a trolley train. Yeah, but, but that was an early trolley train. It's a, it a very early trolley train. <laughs> but it was um, he wasn't letting them get past. He just kept putting his car in a great defensive place all the time and stop and the others were all clattering because they were youngsters in F3 cars they were clattering into each other <laughs> and, I, and I think he finished the race about fourth and I thought it was a fantastic strategic performance by a young kid with a damaged car using his brain and once you got into Formula 1 you very rarely saw that it's bizarre. Oh, I don't know. Well, I thought we saw quite a few trolley trains, to be <laughs> no, honest. No, no, no. no, 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 no. I, I, I was thinking I, about I, the strategy, not when the trolley I, trains. Before I started working <laughs> for him, it was one of my great frustrations, actually. I could quite easily have hit him with a big stick. No. <laughs> oh, I, remember, I remember Ross meant referring to a trolley train in an official FIA conference once, and Yano went mad. Because <laughs> it, it, it had become part of the paddock glossary. He didn't like that at all. No, well, you wouldn't, would you? No, no. I, I wouldn't, and um, I feel a little unkind mentioning it. Today. Frank, just something that comes back to me has just occurred to me now. Um, I mean, all the drivers you've worked with, but still, once in a while, somebody is capable of just stunning you. Um, and I remember talking to you very soon after. You remember the one and only test that Prost ever had in the Ligier? And uh, you were completely stunned. Absolutely. By, by that day. Yeah. I rem it's always stuck in my mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, he was just great for a start. He was one of the few drivers who had actually sussed a few things of his own. He actually said to me once, he said, why is it that even at Monaco in a first gear hairpin, the aerodynamics is more important than anything mechanical? Now, I've never known a driver say that before. In fact, I know quite a lot of engineers who wouldn't understand that. And it is absolutely true if you look at the information and if you think it through. Um, I won't bore you with why, but he had sussed it. 
and he wanted to know from me, who was known as an aero guy, why it was, and that I'd say it was improving. But he was, uh, we did a, on a quali setup, he was two seconds quicker than Bootsen, and on the race sim we did, he averaged 1.6 seconds quicker than Bootsen, which destroyed Ligier, to be honest. And he I mean, it had never driven the car before. Never driven it before. Um, and he wanted to know things like the rock. He didn't. Uh, the, you see, the great drivers. And uh, this is me being an arrogant engineer and enjoying the fact. But the great drivers don't actually try and understand how the car works. They come in and tell you what it's doing, and assume you know how it works well enough to deduce from what they're saying what you need to do next. And they're the guys who are fun to work with. And all the great drivers are like that. None of the great drivers require a. a in my experience require a secretary to just write down what they've done and it you know he was just fast and i i knew he wanted to destroy bootson he hated senna as you know and bootson was a friend of senna's and so he there's no doubt about it he was not going to say it to me but he was going to completely destroy Thierry bootson that day and he did I mean, Thierry was completely sure the chassis had broken or something when he drove it and couldn't get any way. It was spinning off and also he was just nowhere near. And it, it demoralised Guy completely because I think Prost wanted the team, but he wanted it free. And, da, da, da. and we went to the first race with Prost's seat, pedals, everything, assuming Prost was driving. I got to the race and I didn't know that Prost wasn't the number one driver until I got to the race. And... You'd then see Guy's copy of the Times, and we were contracted to have one lower engine than Williams, so there was no way we were going to beat them, however good our car was, to be honest. But if you looked at how much faster Prost was than Bootsen, and looked at where Bootsen was on the grid, as Guy obviously did, because he'd marked it on every sheet, <laughs> <laughs> we'd have been up there. <laughs> And so Guy stopped going to the races, and that's where it all... Once Guy lost his enthusiasm, it was on its way down, really, and then the Deruve and everything else thing happened. But, but um, no, I really think that had Alain come, joined Ligier, it would have been a problem for Guy, because he would definitely have done a cuckoo job on Guy sooner or later, but Ligier would still be up there, I think, because... He, we were quick enough to be pretty competitive with everybody apart from Williams if he'd been driving it. Fascinating. There's another question here. Um, you mentioned it very briefly. This is from Carlos Villabos. I think I've uh, pronounced that right. Probably not. Um, how was it to work with Juan Pablo? Brilliant. I enjoyed it. You know, he's a very difficult guy for some people, but he really wasn't for me because... The f first thing maybe people don't know, I met him with the Lola Champ car. And we've been trying to get people to accept that the Lola was a competitive car because Lola had made a real dog. Everyone had gone to Reynard and it was all but impossible to persuade anybody. I'm sure that um, they were offered free cars and maybe even a bit of an inducement to do it. But Ganassi's said, yeah, we'll give them a try. So I went to the test as, as, a, as a Lola consultant to help out running the car and the plan was Juan Pablo had run the Lola in the morning and then he'd run the Reynard and compare it. Where was the test? Um, what's the name of that concrete circuit in the south of Florida at, um, where they have sports car races? Oh Sebring. Sebring, that's it. I'm an old man Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't remember anything. Anyway, Juan Pablo came in to the pits 
he called Jimmy Vassar over, who's his teammate, and he had a little bit of a conflap. And I went over and said, so, you know, do we need to fix anything? He said, no, I don't think so. I don't think we need to run the rent, Reynard. And one run, it was so sure that it was so much quicker than the Reynard. And in fact, it, it sh so it showed. And poor Reynard were out of business after about two seasons because no one bought them again. It was a bit the same in reverse as what had happened to Lola earlier. And so I knew Juan Pablo fairly well from the champ car. So when I went to Formula One, and sorry, when I was at Williams, if I wanted him to try something, honestly, I could get him to try anything. Because there are some drivers who, if you say, well, actually, if you start from a conceptual point of view, if we move the weight forward by 3% and then reduce the anti-roll stiffness by 22% to compensate, so it's still in balance, it should improve the tyre temperatures. And most drivers I know in Formula 1 wouldn't do that. With Juan Pablo, okay, we do it. And it would be quick. well, it was quicker on the Michelins. And that's how we went from being almost nowhere to... And I don't think with a driver other than Juan Pablo, that would have happened. And he also, car in front, better catch him, better overtake him. You know, there's no, it, it's just the way he worked. His brain it was like Nigel. Um, Nigel Mansell and I didn't really get on all that much because he saw me as someone who supported Nelson Piquet and was trying to do him down, which wasn't true. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, Nigel. <laughs> <coughs> But Juan Pablo, in his approach to racing and his natural car control and overtaking ability, is the nearest to Nigel that I know. But equally, he's, uh, his other similarity to Nigel, it was never his fault if anything went wrong, you know. But I mean, he, 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 he could have been world champion Absolutely. without any problem. No, well, he should have been in 2003 yeah, yeah. if Ferrari hadn't played silly buggers with the tyres yeah. and, dis and all that sort of stuff. That was very dishonest. Well, that's one opinion. of the great disgraces, isn't it? Yeah, it is a disgrace. Um, Juan Pablo would have been world champion in 2003 and he'd deserve it. I actually made a note of the drivers that you worked with mm. at your first spell at Williams. And this is this is just the first spell. Um, so Alan Jones, Regazzoni, Reutemann, Rosberg, Andretti, Daly, Lafitte, Jonathan Palmer, Mansell, Piquet, Patrese, Brundle and Schlesser. Um, we've mentioned some of the other, I mean, it's a huge number of drivers. And I know this is such a sort of um, difficult question to answer. Um, but which of those kind of jump out at you and when you think, God, they were really, they were something? Well, the great drivers are great, aren't they? I mean, Nelson didn't win the World Championship several times by accident. He's introvert and clever. And the, the two things I would say that stand out amongst great drivers, ones who win f a lot, are those two things, intelligence and they're introvert because extroverts don't pay enough attention. They crash too much. The other guy who really impressed was Carlos Reutemann as a driver. He could do things with a car that are just unbelievable. But he was superstitious. He believed his tea leaves when they were red and stuff like that. And he gave up in the year he should have been world champion because somebody had given him a... You know, he went to the last race only needing to finish in front of Piquet to win the world championship. Jones won the race. Mm. And to quote Nelson... I come up to overtake him, he opened his legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that is what he said. But the amazing <laughs> thing about it, Frank, was, I mean, no, I think that, that was on the first lap, as far as I was second. Oh, no, lap. it was later it than that. But it was, it was, you know, he, Carlos had basically decided, he came at Silverstone, I think, when he had a 30-odd point lead in the championship, which was a lot when there were nine points for a win. He came into the motorhome and said, he's no good for me this year, Frank. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it was a shame. But I what he could do with the car... I remember going around, uh, around Brands Hatch. We were testing. 
And uh, oh, the other good thing was that Carlos and Jonesy both had 100% trust of each other in terms of setup. So if I did a, something on one car, the other driver would put it straight on, no question, no, oh, I want to try that. It was went on. That was really, really helpful. But it started raining, so it was, you know, there are two ways of learning absolutely nothing in the wet. One's to run the car and the other's to leave it in the garage. <laughs> Technically, I'm talking, not drivers. That, <laughs> that antagonism between Alan Jones and Reutemann, um, was that Jones knowing that he had one of the toughest teammates he could have, but knowing he could he could get to him by... Uh, uh, that, that, that's being too subtle. I'd re I really don't know. But I really think that Carlos felt that he was helping Jonesy win the championship in 80 and that Jonesy would help him win it yeah. in 81. And when Jonesy didn't, and it was blatantly clear that he was going to have to race him, that demoralised him. That certainly is the case. Whether that was Jones's intention or not, I have no idea. And I doubt was it. Then, then there was the problem in Rio, yeah. where Jones was livid afterwards that Carlos hadn't let him by. Yeah. But I always, yeah, but I I always thought, like I never understood why the hell Frank did that. Because no. Alan had won the championship in 80, and it really should have been, okay, you know, it, uh, everybody said to Carlos when he went there, this is Alan's year, he's deserved it, he's earned it, he's worked with the team, we've got to where we are because of him and all the rest of it. Fine. But he, and he won the championship. And then the same rules still appertained mm. in 81. That, you know, fundamentally, if they're both finished, you know, Alan Jones had to be yeah. ahead. I, 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 to be honest, I wasn't actually aware of that being consciously stated within and and it was as i say there were no formal meetings at williams we all had a sandwich together in frank's office well patrick frank myself and george koopman the accountant used to sit down in frank's office and have a sandwich and a chat about what we've been up to every day for lunch and that was the nearest you got to a management meeting that i was aware of sounds great it was good yeah <laughs> sign me up <laughs> yeah and um i never re i don't actually remember that but you see patrick was Jones, you know, cut him through, said Alan. He was, uh, uh, that race at the end, at um, Las Vegas, at the end of the season, it was one of my races, and Patrick came out to help Carlos. And so he was supposed to be, and I was running Jones, and Patrick and Neil were running Carlos. Well, that's what it was supposed to be. <laughs> as soon as Jonesy came in the pitch, Patrick was there. You know, he, yeah. he, he had to keep yeah. saying, Patrick, I suppose, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And off he Because he was, you know, Jones was like his brother. Yeah. So I don't think it would be all that deliberate, to be honest. It was just sort of segued into it always being that way, because that's the sort of way it was. It still remains, <coughs> I think, the most unfathomable um, mm. performance I've ever seen. It's <coughs> a such if a shame. If you, if you remember, I mean, Carlos was on pole. And he set that time on, on the first day, and then no one got near it. And it was just a lap out of nowhere. It was a fantastic lap. And then, come race day, he just faded to nothing. And I, I remember you were talking about Silverstone when he had a quite a big lead in the championship. I, I interviewed him there, and I remember saying to him, boy, this is, you know, this is really looking likely now, Carlos. This is really going well. And he said, very difficult. This, I think he's going too well. And that was his mindset, mm. you know, I don't trust this, this, this can't continue. Mm. Yeah, he, he just, he, his mind worked in strange ways. But as a, as a talent, as a guy driving a car, yeah. I don't think I've seen anybody better. He was just yeah. astonishing. And I, I, we, Peter Windsor was at this, as Mrs. Reutemann, as he was called at the time, he was at um, this particular 
test we were doing at Brands Hatch. And when it rained, Carlos wanted me to get in the car and go round with him because there was a surface change in kidney. It was the short circuit we were testing at. And the car did something, and he wanted to try and show me where the line was and everything to see if I could understand. So he put his wellies on because it was raining. He borrowed Peter Windsor's car, which was a Fiat 131 rally, whatever it was. And we drove out onto the circuit. And it's typical Carlos. He was driving with one finger on the wheel. He had his arm around the back of me on the seat, facing me, talking to me about the car. And at no time were we pointing the way we were travelling. You know, the car was in slides, <laughs> even out of clearways. He didn't bother to straighten it out because we, we were going to be going around paddock next. So, And it was like <laughs> millimetre perfect, one hand, and speeds I couldn't drive in the dry. And he wasn't really even paying attention. He was too busy talking to me. And only on one occasion did he take his other hand off and straighten it up because he got into a bit of a thing over this surface-changing kidney. He was trying to demonstrate what the car did. But I just... It was breathtaking. And there was no drama. He wasn't like... If you'd have gone around with Keki, you would have been on the lock stops, you know, sideways all the way. And it would be massively entertaining. But with Carlos, it was just astonishing to see that what he was doing was possible. I would have not believed it. Do you remember when he, years after he'd retired, do you remember they put him in a Ferrari oh, yeah. in, in, was, in, in Buenos Aires? Buenos yeah. Aires yeah. And he was competitive and he, within and, laps. And he would have qualified about ninth yeah. or 10th. Yeah. So Never driven it, it a car for years. No. I can't remember, I remember which either. year it was, but it was, it was, it was a long time It was the first year we went back uh, to Argentina, so yeah, you could look it right. up. It was about 95, I think, mid-90s. Yeah, something like yeah. 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 I was checking into the hotel and something big hit me on my back and knocked all the wind out of me, and it was Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how are you doing? Because <laughs> he's a big man. But, but yeah, uh, he was just, that was just astonishing. It would be 96, I yeah, think. Yeah, it, it really was, wasn't it? It was 95, yeah. like you say. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. We've got a question here from former Formula One driver and sports car driver Karen Chantock. Um, and he's uh, just going back to Nelson Piquet. Why doesn't Nelson Piquet get rated as highly as some others? Um, he was mega in the 1980s. Um, is that because of the British media? Since I don't read many of the other media, it's impossible for me to say. But I would say possibly. Because, you know, up to the point at which he was up against Nigel, he was mega rated. Uh, Nigel could probably answer that better than I can, actually, because um, I know he went down in your estimation. Well, I, I thought I thought some of the things he did uh, on a personal level to Nigel were a bit underhand. But certainly, the, um, the criticism of the family was yeah, was all, that, all that. I, I really didn't like I that. Find I find it thought, difficult. I thought, to where the hell's like that, that come from? No, Why it's most unlike him. That? Yeah, I don't I know. know. I know. Yeah, I mean, because I always thought, you know, fundamentally, he's actually quite a kind man. Yeah, um, I would say. So well, I mean, you look at his his children and all that yeah I mean, he's seemed a very normal sort of a guy to, and me. Uh, to the point that i sort of thought has somebody put him up to that has somebody mm. suggested this is how you get to to, to mansell I, I don't know that's a, i don't, I don't know. know i don't know either but uh, no it's a, it's a very good question because it's always a surprise me that his sort of he went from being considered to be right at the top of the game to being sort of a bit so so and i still consider him to be at the top of course up to the point at which he banged his head on the wall where Senna died, he was much quicker than Nigel. After that, he couldn't see properly, and he was about the same pace as Nigel. And Nigel being such an aggressive and good overtaker, it was much closer after that. But up to the point at which Nelson crashed, I, I don't know whether you remember that, I Nigel. do, clearly. Uh, but, and, he, but he, and he did say to me, actually not that long ago, 
that it was about three quarters of the way through the season when he started to feel like Nelson Piquet. Yeah. But so he, he, he never drove he could, he could most never, of the season with. He could never see properly. No. Uh, his no, short no. vision had gone, so he couldn't see the dashboard properly. Oh. And he, he just wasn't the same Nelson. And I mean, you know, he. Uh, that's another sad thing, because I was not the only person saying you must do something about this wall, because, you know, Gerhard had hit it and the car had caught fire. Oh, Alberetto hit yeah. it. Yeah. Nelson had hit it. There were serious accidents. It c- was quite clear it could be fatal. And they. Every time it was suggested, oh no, we can't do anything, there's a river behind there, you can't do anything, Senna dies and they put a chicane in. Yeah. And you think to yourself, well, the guy who signed that circuit is the person responsible for the death of it and Senna. That's, n- yeah. <laughs> that's a yeah. really provocative yeah. thing to say, but you know, it but was it's known it's that somebody could die there. But the, uh, Absolutely, but I mean, you know, when we went back there and they put the chicane in, and... I remember talking to Sid Watkins, who was, you know, close to Ed, and he was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but he said, but isn't it a shame at the same time they've ruined it? <laughs> which yeah. Which is also Well, that's true. Sid, isn't it? I remember um, him coming into Sid, the, the racing saying, would you like a drink, Sid? Oh, it's a bit early. It's a bit, bit early for whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Better just have wine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the thing about Nelson, that uh, any engineer who worked with him... Um, Loved working with him because he worked so hard, despite the the reputation as being a, you know, the the Joker and the uh, the things he said about Mansell's family. He was a really hard grafter, wasn't he? Yeah. So he never said anything like that about Nigel to me or when I was working with him. So yeah, he was. He was great. And I do remember Nigel was absolutely adamant he was never driving the active car. Now it was my invention. I developed it, and I did everything. In fact, I drove it for the f- when it first ran because nobody else would drive it. I drove it in an airfield in Abingdon, and. Um, Nigel said no. He'd tested the Lotus active car, felt it wasn't the way to go, and it was too dangerous, and he wouldn't drive it. And so Nelson did all the development, and and Schlesser did some too. And there was one occasion where Nigel had gone, uh, was living in the Isle of Man, and Nelson had gone to visit his mum in Brasilia. And there was just something I really needed to test, and we booked Silverstone. And I asked, was it Sally then? I can't remember, but I asked if they'd, you know, it's only a short test, could Nigel do it? No, couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't come from the Isle of Man to Silverstone. So I rang Nelson and he got on the next plane, flew back to England, did the test at Silverstone and then went back to Brasilia. No problem. You know, and that's... And then, once the active car won its first race, Nigel had to have one, even though he said he would never drive one. The guys worked 24-7 to build a chassis because the tubes actually, the hydraulic tubes actually went inside the chassis, you couldn't convert one and build a car and then <laughs> while they were finishing it off I think in the pits I can't remember whether it was Donington or where but they were in the garage and Derek Warwick came wandering up and there's Nigel leaning against the wall and said to Derek oh the bastards have let me have one at last and <laughs> <laughs> the boys all chucked their mechanics uh, the mechanics all threw their tools on the floor and picked off out of the back for a sandwich and a cup of tea yeah, he was not very popular with them for that sort of thing Whereas Nelson, <laughs> Nelson was. In fact, when Nelson, fo- Nelson used to give the mechanics a little um, Christmas present, cash. And he used to give it to Alan Chalice, who used to distribute it amongst the guys working on Nelson's car. And um, when he found out that Nigel didn't, <laughs> he gave them his mechanics one as well. <laughs> I remember Patrick saying, say, remember Patrick, Pat- Patrick saying to me one day, if I could just get him hermetically sealed, 
<laughs> drop him into the car at the start of the day and pluck him out of it at the end of it, that would be probably about ideal. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you know, Nigel... We, we might get a few comments on this podcast. Yeah. Well, yeah. to be honest, Nigel had the fastest car five times in his career and he was world champion once. And it wasn't his fault he wasn't world champion on the other occasions. You think, here, if we're going to be controversial, and obviously that was, you look at that year where he didn't win the world championship when the tyre burst at the last race in Adelaide. Okay. Now, that was obviously a tragedy. But the reason why it looks so terrible is because it was the last race and we knew what all the points were. If you reverse the season and he'd had a tyre burst at the first race of the season, by mid-season, pretty well everyone would have forgotten that he'd not scored any points at that race because his tyre burst. And if the last race of the season, with him vying for the championship, had been Brazil, and he crashed on the first lap doing something stupid, which is actually what happened in Brazil, <laughs> everyone says silly old bugger doesn't deserve to be world champion. But in fact, it was the other way around. He lost just as many points in both events, but the perception of the unluckiness is due to the actual circumstance the last race, not any of the others. It's like Nelson. He knocked all four wheels off his car whilst catching the leader at three seconds a lap in Detroit. He would have been world champion if he hadn't have done that. By the end of the season, sort of forgotten. You know what I mean? Yeah. Perception is often different to reality. Um, Frank, you mentioned active suspension. We've got to, we've got to talk about that, surely. Um, can you remember being as being the pioneer of it of the system, the the nebulous of the idea, where it came from, the the theory behind it? Oh, easily, yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, Lotus ran it before we did with an analog computer. But I, when I first started wind tunnel testing and saw how much difference moving the car made, i.e., ride height changes. I was thinking, oh, we really ought to have something better than just springs controlling where it is. And when it was ground effect, we had three inches of suspension travel with the sliding skirts, and it really, over the, that range, it was okay. As soon as we went flat bottom, like the front of the car got level with the back, and the car would take off. It was massively unstable, um, horrible. And I then started thinking, well, you know, we ought to have some sort of active suspension control the aero platform. And um, we didn't have the budget, frankly. We, you know, we, the, the one of the things that people have now is so much money they can do anything they like. Whereas back then, we had to spend the money on the things we thought would make the most difference. And at that time, neither Patrick nor I thought, given how much it was going to cost, we could afford the time and money to do it so we didn't back then but then um a guy i can't remember his name but the ap had done a stability type hydraulic suspension system for ambulances and this guy came along with all sorts of information about how good it had been and what a shame it was they um dropped it and patrick oh, great, well, we, we can do something like that. So he, he said to me, why don't we do something like this? And I went off and did some sums, and the way they'd done it wouldn't work at all on a Formula One car. For The inside front wheel load goes too low for the system they had. It would have just floated up into mid-air if, if you'd had a system like they'd had on the ambulance. But I did a system based on that idea, three-legged stool, so the corner weights were always good. And we made a mechanical system with mechanical valves and everything. And Nelson drove it on a converted 09. 
And he said, oh, he came into the pits and said, oh, it's amazing. He said, right, it's just like a Cadillac. He said, there's one problem. It handles like a Cadillac as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, right, well, it, to control the mechanical valves and everything and change them and adjust them was horrendous. So I thought, right, we're going to do it electronically. And, and so I wrote a, a specification for a control program. And we got an American guy who I knew to make a controller and write the software. And it went from there using basically a back-to-front version of this but the whole idea was to, I didn't give a damn about ride, frankly. All I wanted to do was to optimise the um, ride height in the corners and prevent this horrific instability you get from a flat-bottom car. And it was good fun. It was just, it was astonishingly hard work, though, because I was doing all the wind tunnel testing. I did all of the active. I designed the struts. I drew the struts. I did everything. We got a guy in when it started looking good, who's still there. I see him every time I pop into Williams. Uh, but and eventually we hired uh, this may amuse the um, when it became clear that it was going to work I thought well this American guy is a friend of mine but what if he decides to make a controller like that for everybody that's not going to be good and whilst I wrote the specification he wrote the code we'd be completely screwed if you went to everyone else and that had happened with the skirts I designed some skirts which worked really well and the bike bloke who made them made some for Gordon Murray which really pissed me <laughs> off um, <laughs> and um, you know how those things do anyway I thought we stuck an advert in the paper in autosport probably uh, for, for engineers and two guys I offered a job to two guys, one to do the electronic box and one to do the control software. And the one to do the electronic box, uh, Steve Wise, is still head of electronics at Williams. And the one I hired to do, a very young guy, I hired to do the uh, control software is Paddy Lowe. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Do, do, you look, do you look back and um, sort of realise now how lucky you were to be involved in oh. all that activity? Because I mean, yeah. if you look at F1 today and the strides that you're making and the the inventions that were, that were sort of hitting the track every, I mean, every race. I reckon on a 30% improvement from... I did The biggest improvement I ever made in a week in the wind tunnel was 30%. Well, you wouldn't make that in 10 years now. It was done just before Silverstone in 79. And the problem was the floor stalled at the back of the chassis. And I was determined to get the flow attached all the way to the back of the underbody. And I came up with a fairing that went around the engine and joined to the rear suspension cowling. And we just made out a bit of aluminium and taped it on. And it was just massive. So I, I got on the train, <laughs> straight back to the factory, drew it overnight, got it made and took it out to Silverstone. And that's when Jonesy, um, I think he was, it, it was something like one and a half seconds quicker oh, around Silverstone. Pole, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was on pole by that amount, yeah, wasn't that's he? It, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that was that. That was the bit. That was the bit, and it was... And then the second half of that season, nothing you get no, near well, it was, we had so much more downforce than everybody else then. It really was a lot. You remember that wonderful <laughs> race in Montreal between Alan and I Gilles? I do. That was such... That was that one of the great races, wasn't it? My, the highlight of my career, that was. That, that was the race I remember with the most fondness of all races I attended. Not least... Not, a, it was a great race between those two. Who, and frankly, Jonesy thought... All the other drivers were wimps apart from Gilles. He was the only one he had any respect for. But, you know, nowadays you've got God knows how many engineers, you've got sensors on the brakes, you've got this, that and the other. Then there was Neil and I. Neil was running one car, I was running Jonesy, and we did the best we could set the car up, 
do practice, and, and then you ran for half an hour in the warm-up. It was the first time you filled the car up with fuel. And then you measured the fuel consumption, the tyre wear, the brake wear, and all these other things that you needed to know for the race and make sure they were okay. Well, and the engineer themselves, they, there was nobody else coming to do it. You actually went out with some calipers and measured your brake pads and your brake discs and did it yourself. So I measured the brake wear. We weren't going to finish. I measured the fuel consumption. We weren't going to finish. <laughs> the fuel tank, even those days, you could brim it on the grid. There was none of this, no refuel. You could yeah. stick a chat, you could stick. Even with that, we didn't have a big enough fuel tank to finish the race on fuel consumption, and the brakes would wear out. And of course, no data, no measurements, no nothing. It's just, oh, shit. So I had a bit of a think, and I explained it all to Jonesy, and I said, and Frank was cross, because <laughs> he, you know, how could that possibly happen? Well, of course, we'd never been there before. You know, Montreal is incredibly hard on brakes and fuel consumption. Anyway, <laughs> we learned it then. So I said to Jonesy, I'm really not sure, but I have a bit of a guess. We'll use most fuel and brakes when we're heavy. So what we need to do is take it really easy for a while. And I recommend that you don't race with Gilles at the beginning because you wear your tyres out, you do your brakes, you use fuel. And at a certain point in the race, I'm going to give you the pump sign. We had a pump-off sign to switch off the electric pump, which was the only non-obvious sign. They said, and from then, you can race if you like. And, I, and it's my guess. I've got, you know, we should be all right. So I can't remember exactly, but I'm thinking, well, he, he, he ran with him, taking care of his car and everything. And I thought, well, he's, you know, he's not really overdoing it. He's doing okay. And after, I can't remember exactly when I stuck it out, but we stuck the pump, and I held the pump sign out, and he went for it then. It was a great race. It was about three-quarter distance, I yeah. think, wasn't it? Something oh, it like was that. later than that. Was uh, sorry, it was well earlier than that. I, d I didn't easily catch him and overtake yeah, he him. passed him in the hairpin, I think, didn't but he? I, uh, yes. The old, the old yeah, hairpin. The old hairpin. But the, um, it was up to that point when he he'd been looking you know looking after his car. After that, it was a race, and it wasn't. We didn't just sort of catch him and overtake him or anything. I mean, oh I no think no. it was a good. But that's such a. I mean, it was a. It was one of those things where you think, well, we really won that by the skin of our teeth. Well, the other thing about it, Frank, was that I remember talking to Jonesy after the race, and he said, you know, when he got past him, he said, I really thought, that, okay, that's it, and he said. And then I look at my mirrors and that bloody red thing's still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that it was right to the end, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, those are the great drivers, the ones who are not demoralised and still keep coming back at you. And you still see it. I mean, you still, you know, Alonso doesn't get overtaken and then not have another go at getting back at the next corner or, but, you know... <laughs> Did you check the brakes at the end of that race? What, what was left? On I can't remember. I was so pleased we'd won. <laughs> we probably just... I mean, they may well... Biggles may well have given them away as, or sold them as souvenirs. <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely plausible. That's the sort of thing that went on. Um, now, Frank, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a technical question here um, because we have had quite a few in and I should ask mm. them. Um, I'm not saying that I understand the questions, uh, but this one is, is, I do actually get this, I think. So this is from Peter. Um, how do diffusers actually work? Do they curve flow or expand it? And how does flow expansion, you can, you can hear I'm actually reading this, because um, how does flow expansion generate suction? Please spare no detail. This is from oh Peter. Oh, goodness. Well, if, uh, the, you, if you have attached flow, which a diffuser must have in it for it to work, you will find that because the pressure behind the diffuser is fixed by whatever atmospheric pressure is, and if the flow attaches, it must 
be going faster through the narrow bit between the car and the ground, um, the pressure will be lower because the, the, the higher the speed of the air, the lower the pressure. So the diffuser itself is important to generate a low pressure under the car. If the diffuser doesn't work, you don't get the low pressure, but the downforce comes from the low pressure under the car. Right. I think I've got that. I'm, 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 I'm sure that's answered it's your question. It's actually massively more complicated than I that. Thought than that <laughs> I, I, th I thought it might be. I thought it might be. You took one look at my face, and then you thought yeah. you did a simple version, no, didn't no. you? <laughs> the thing is, it's incredibly influenced by wheel wakes. One of the things that, with an open-wheel car, at least 50% of your effort on the aerodynamics is controlling the wheel wakes and stopping them ruining everything else. Um, it's incredibly more difficult than with a closed car, closed wheel car. Closed wheel cars are trivial aerodynamically compared to open wheelers. And a lot of it is preventing the front and rear wheel wakes ending up in the diffuser, destroying the diffuser. And so things like using the brake ducts and the front wing end plates and vanes and things to try and get the front wheel wake moving outwards rather than inwards is massively powerful. So I'm, I'm going to keep sort of well in the present. Um, there's a question here from Anthony Jenkins about what three things would you do to improve the track offering in Formula One. But I'd, I read something online where you said overtaking um, in F1, you said you are a firm believer that aero is not the problem at all. Oh no, I uh, sorry, I don't. I think it's it is a problem, it but okay. the, the importance of it is as being the only thing right, is wildly exaggerated, in as much as. Aerodynamics has been probably, it was probably in 1975 when I first discovered that aerodynamics was the most important thing. And whilst other people didn't know that, those that did were building successful Formula One cars. And so, you know, the aero has been crucial since then. And if reducing downforce was the key issue, 83 would have been a mega year. It's long enough ago to give you the numbers. The FW08 had a lift to drag ratio of 8.2. The flat bottom FW08C had a lift to drag ratio of 1.6. And in fact, I was so shitting myself that I had missed something. I can't tell you how relieved I was when we were on pole at Brazil. Because <laughs> I thought that everyone must have done better than that. How can I possibly? How can we possibly? So 80% of the aerial efficiency of Formula One cars was lost between 1982 and 1983. So if aero was the key thing, there would be massively more overtaking in 1983 than there had been in 1982. I think that's a fair deduction, and yet there wasn't. My view is that sticky tyres, which the drivers love, mean that braking distances are very short. People talk about the brakes. The amount of, it doesn't matter what your brakes are made of, uh, apart from reliability. The braking distance is entirely determined by the grip. So... The fact is, with very sticky tyres and the downforce, it's, I'm not saying downforce doesn't count, because of course it does affect how close you can get, but braking distances are very short. Equally, with very sticky tyres, the track rubbers in, and we've all seen it on the TV, by halfway through the race, every corner has got a black sticky line, and off line is just a huge pile of black swarf. Who's going to overtake? The difference in grip between the line and offline is massive. And if you had hard tyres that lasted longer, that would mean that the braking distances were longer and the difference in grip between the racing line and offline during the race in particular would be much less. But the drivers love soft tyres and they don't, don't want... 
And yet, you know, we had great races, but we were talking about it earlier. Uh, Jim Clark actually won two Grand Prix wearing the same set of tyres, and Nigel assures me that he actually used one set of tyres for four Grand Prix. That was what Chapman told me, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, was that shit racing? Excuse my French. I don't think no. it was. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, we're so having s harder tyres wouldn't ruin the racing, in my view. But, and again, it's... It's something I think Nigel was saying, uh, engineers of my generation believe, it's the fly-by-wire throttle and the semi-automatic gearbox, which is the biggest problem. Because before, with a cable on the throttle and a very, very snappy engine, the driver picked the throttle up a bit too much and he was sideways out of the corner. You caught up with him a bit. If you missed a gear shift, because shifting gear was difficult. I mean, now my mum can change gear as fast as... Uh, and Senna would be able to do. You know, there is zero skill involved in gear shifting. Absolutely zero. And therefore, no one should miss a shift unless a gearbox breaks, and then you're in for a five-spot penalty on the next grid anyway. But, you know, th for me, the thing, looking at dicing back in the day when there was plenty of downforce and great big wings on the things and all the rest of the stuff, we had some great dices and good overtaking manoeuvres because people's this driver skill involved in controlling the throttle to the nth degree and changing gear when under pressure without making a mistake wasn't guaranteed. I mean, not the great drivers didn't make mistakes often, but under pressure, that was a chance. And for me, the two things that have that hurt overtaking potential most in Formula One, over and above, I'm not saying aero not, uh, that don't get talked about are that. The engines are too easy to drive and so are the gearboxes. You remember about three years ago, Prost had a, he, he drove the Red Bull, didn't he? Um, and I, when I was talking to him about it afterwards, he, he, was, he was shaken by how easy it was. Yeah. Quite, you know, taken aback. Um, Wouldn't have been easy for me, of course, but yeah, I, I think that is a big thing. You know, you watch. I watched. Uh, there's a video online of uh, Johnny Dumfries doing a lap of Monte Carlo, and you watch him changing gear. You think it's hardly any time to put his right hand on the gear shift on the uh, steering wheel. And now you've got a button, and the computer does everything, and it does it perfectly time after time after time. There is zero skill involved in changing gear. Whereas with a crash gearbox. Dog gearbox. Changing gear for a whole Grand Prix without damaging the dogs was something. I remember that was one of the early things when you had a new young driver who'd just done Formula 3, 15 lappers, come into Formula 1. You'd show them the dog ring and say, you won't finish a Grand Prix if you don't learn to change gear. Those will not. Those look okay now, and it's okay, but they won't be. And, you know, that was part of driver education. Oh, 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 the as well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, the was another part. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, I mean, Michele was one of the things, <laughs> I remember Ken Tyrrell being always upset because he used to, ch ch he changed down and he'd take his foot off the clutch when he was going, like, fast enough to over-rev it in fourth and he just popped it in second. And so, you know, that was another DFE gone. <laughs> and, you know, the drivers who, who w didn't over-rev it, because DFE, 200 revs over-revved, it was going to break. Yeah. You know, you had to take it out. There was no point in leaving it in. And, yeah, there were a lot of driver skills of that nature which people don't seem to be talking about. They seem to get hooked up on this aero thing. And for me, that 1982-1983 data plus the fact that from just as a fan watching the, the, the skill of the throttle control, gear shift and all that sort of stuff was a key part of dicing and racing back in the day mm. for me. But as an engineer who's lived through the biggest technical changes we've, we've seen in, uh, in our sport, 
you can't be in favour of going backwards, I assume. Well, is it back? I mean, it depends. <sighs> I take your point, but the problem is we don't have gearboxes like that on road cars. They'd be too expensive. Um, and it's a sport. Nobody... I know... Um, People often justify motorsport by saying oh, it improves the breed. Well, it may, but f as an engineer and a fan, I don't care. Nobody says, nobody tries to justify football and the huge amount of money spent on football by saying, ah, oh, yes, but those football boots, you see the stitching on those? You can get those on your shoes to take, you know, you can go to the supermarket <laughs> in shoe stitch like that <coughs> now. You know, why would you justify? I mean, it's a great sport. People love watching it. I do do what's good for us, good sport. And if that means going back to a dog-engaged crash gearbox, um, and people think it does, uh, mind you, most of the young drivers <laughs> wouldn't be able to drive at all, would they? It'd be quite funny, actually. You know, how many of them could actually change gear? Because they probably have never done it in any formula yeah. they've been in. Alan McNish tells a good story. He's got the dog rings to the McLaren, the first McLaren he tested, because he, he did them straight away. And he, yeah. you know, he didn't know how to heel and toe. And uh, yeah, David Leslie had to take him out in, a, in a, an old BMW road car to teach him how to heel and toe. Mm. And he used to just crash it through until he got to Formula One and, he, and then he had to think about it in those early, yeah. just, just well, before you, the semi The races weren't long in. enough for you actually to break the gearbox. It was ruined, but you kept going. Yeah, and for me, all right, it's, it depends on how you see motor racing. If you really do think it is to improve the breed, and I must say, I'm uh, unusual under many. I actually very much approve of the hybrid engine simply because it's such amazing technology you know 160 kilos of fuel to 100 kilos of fuel and about the same performance i mean how incredibly magic is that okay they sound horrid but then so did the 80s turbos they didn't sound good did they that bmw or they were nothing special and actually even the v8s the 2.4 v8s it was just a sort of white noise yeah. scream the 12 yeah the 12s and the 10s were fun yeah, yeah. matra mm. Anyway, yeah, no, 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 <laughs> we get we're showing our age. Nothing Nigel. ever sounded like a matter. <laughs> no, nothing ever did. No, it didn't. So, but you know, for me, it would be very difficult to go away with a hybrid engine. In fact, unthinkable to go away from a flyby wire throttle. But it wouldn't be beyond the wit of man to go back to a manual gearbox. But I mean, it's true. It, it <sighs> It's so not likely to happen, is it? There's some sort of balance we need to strike between uh, the justifying thing, the hybrid stuff, which is great and great technology and is the future of where we're going in, in road cars, and the mechanical side of it that, that as a sport of allowing the drivers to actually drive the cars mm. and it to be a challenge. There's some balance that needs to be drawn yeah, there. I, I, I quite agree. And, but you see, I don't see, like Nigel just said, Prost said the Red Bull was easy. Uh, and it's easy because you've got power steering. You've got a semi-automatic gearbox and a fly-by-wire throttle where 5% more throttle travel is 5% more torque. That's what you would target with the engine. Well, <laughs> the first 5% of the throttle travel on a DFV was 95% of the torque. <laughs> 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 and, um, you know, you, those were the skills that the drivers needed. And I quite agree with what you're saying, but how do you go... How do you give the driver more skill requirement, make it tougher on the driver without going back to those things? And, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. No. No, so I, I really don't know. Frank, you've got a spectacular list of former collaborators. Are there any drivers you wish you had worked with but you never had the opportunity? Senna. 
Yeah, I, I, I would have liked to have properly worked with Prost, but uh, it would have been interesting. Senna and Alonso are the two that I didn't work with, who I have the highest regard for. Um, just before I go around the table and get a, the last few questions, because we are running out of time, I've got, I've got a question here from Sam Smith, um, who's asking whether the Lola MG LMP675 car would have got a podium or more at Le Mans if the development had continued as it should. Oh, it should have won, yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting. When you do the sums, <laughs> that's an awful lot of weight. 675 kilos to 900 kilos is an awful lot of weight. It's very difficult to make the car light and reliable for a 24-hour race. And that's why it needed more development. But I'm completely sure if the rules had stayed the same, and so were Audi, because I, I got to know some of the Audi engineers and they were completely shitting themselves, because if there'd been some money applied to that, they would have been... I reckon it would have taken three years to get the car reliable and everything else and the team working as it was. And, of course, we only got one and there were some problems, but there's no doubt that it... And they had done the calculation and said, we're making the wrong sort of car. And I think that's a large reason why the rules did change to LMP1 and LMP2. Well, the, the, the Porsche Spider that came after that showed that it could be Audi over in America, the LMS, wasn't it? It was really nip and tuck with between those two. Great, well, a great yeah, era. I mean, it's not a small amount of weight difference, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, 10 kilos in Formula 1 is worth 0.35 of a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, any other questions, Simon, Nigel? I, I'd just like to, just very briefly, Frank, I, I remember you, you telling me before, you did actually enjoy IndyCar racing a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I just wonder how you look back on that, you know, well, that you period when you were involved. Well, you never cease to learn, that's the thing. And it was interesting, I learned quite a lot from the IndyCars. Some things which I just suspected um, in Formula One and were either too difficult or too expensive to, to actually do is... I had this feeling that the only powerful thing affecting tyre temperature is that the tyre contact patch area is correct for the weight that's on it and the power. So for a given tyre size there's an optimum, and a given engine power, there's an optimum weight distribution. Now in Formula 1 it's all but impossible to test that, um, but I could do that on an Indy car. And, um, I knew already that the most important thing to do was to fly the car at the best ride height through all the corners and you can buy setting springs and all the rest of the stuff to do that. And um, the one big lesson or confirmation of that was the first person to accept having a Lola was uh, Hogan. And they asked me to go, and it was the short oval at Phoenix, and I'd never been, never been to a short oval, never run an Indy car before, didn't know anything about it. Luckily, Castro Neves, wasn't it? It was, yeah. luckily. Young Castro Neves, yeah. who was relatively unknown then, and... I went to the race engineers and said, oh, would you like you to set it up, same weight distribution as your Reynard, because, of course, the Reynard done all the tyre development, so if you didn't have that, you'd, be, you'd have blown it mechanically. And then I went through and looked at making sure we were in the right part of the aero. And the first thing, they didn't know what the <laughs> weight distribution of their Reynard was, because it was a small team. But uh, we did the aero thing, measured the tyre temperatures, and then I adjusted the weight distribution to get the tyre temperatures right. And by lunchtime, Castro Nevers was fastest. <laughs> Um, I'm groundbreaking stuff today, Frank. We have our first live question. Oh, uh, something we've never done before. Uh, but this has just come in from Twitter. I say live, but it's a recorded podcast. But mm. hopefully the, the idea comes across. Um, Andy Gearing wants to know your thoughts on Nakajima. As a driver? Yeah. Well, he... 
he was a sort of also ran, to be honest. He's a nice guy, he just wasn't quick enough. Uh, he, he didn't speak any English either, so the translation between race engineer and him had to be done through his manager, who did, which didn't make it easy. Um, it was also quite difficult. when Back in the day when we didn't have any uh, cockpit regulations, uh, we made... The Lotus was made to fit Nelson. It was made to fit him like a glove. Literally, he sat in and we moulded round him. So anyone bigger than him was not going to fit in, or certainly not comfortably. But Nakajima, when we put him in it, we had to move his nose till it practically touched the cockpit edge before he could touch the pedals. So, you know, <laughs> we, we had a massive, <laughs> massive project to get him in. It was not easy to... And so that, that wasn't easy either. He could barely see out. He was a tiny guy. But no, he's, I think his son probably deserved more time in Formula 1 than he got. Oh, sorry, it was that the Nakajima they were asking Yes, about? it was. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry, I should, have, I should have said that. I should have said you that. see, you're talking to an old man. <laughs> I know both Nakajimas in the same way that I know both Rosbergs. Um, well, I thought he was good. I, I, yeah, I think he, he probably deserved better than he got. Well, on that groundbreaking note of live questions, uh, we really must uh, draw an end to it after, I think, an hour and 15 minutes. Frank, thank you so much for coming in. It's been Welcome. absolutely wonderful. It's always fun to talk bit. about racing. Um, thank you, Damien. Thank you, Alan, for recording beautifully, as always. Uh, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Nigel. A very warm welcome back. It's, it's good to have you here. We'll see you all next month. Bye-bye for now. Bye.